Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, and fish fans everywhere to episode 10 of Swimming Upstream. And guys, we have got an absolutely amazing show today. Big, big treat for all of us, myself included. We'll get to learn about not one, but two of the new MILB affiliates straight from the source. It's an absolute honor for me, guys, to have with me and have with us today, Mr. Quint Studer. Mr. Studer, the owner of the Studer Group and both the Beloit Snappers and the new the new uh, single-A advanced entity of the Miami Marlins and the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, the new double-A affiliate of the Marlins. Mr. Studer, first of all, thank you so, so much for taking the time out to come on the program with me today. We know you're super, super busy, of course. I uh, continue to be busy with everything that you do, not only with baseball, we're going to get to that as well. Uh, so yeah, first and foremost, welcome to the Marlins family. This is a huge family. I do mean that it's a family you're going to get to know that you probably have already. Uh, how are you today? Thank you again. Well, thank you, Alex. No, it's been fun to follow you on social media. So it's a, a pleasure to be on with you today. Awesome. Awesome. We asked you to come on with us. Uh, obvious reasons, of course, the state of each of your clubs, um, your philosophy as an owner. And of course, outside of that, the heroic work that you have done. And I, I mean that it's heroic uh, outside of baseball. You know, this goes beyond baseball. We're going to get to it. So I won't waste any more time. I'm going to get right to it. We're going to learn a lot about you, your work in this interview. But I'd like to give, uh, I'd like you to give a brief bio on yourself, uh, Quint, when your love of sports first started and how you went from a business professional in the medical field to baseball ownership to community champion and philanthropist in a pretty short amount of time. Go ahead. Well, sure. Um, I grew up in outside Chicago. Um, my parents in Brookfield, Illinois. The Bukovich's Tavern was like the neighborhood hangout. And every Sunday they had a bus that went to the White Sox games. And I would get able to hop on a bus with the people that hung out there and would go to the White Sox game. And I think because I was born in 1951, when I was eight years old, when you first start clicking about baseball is when the go-go White Sox went to the World Series. Unfortunately, they lost to the LA Dodgers, but I still remember Louis Aparicio, Nellie Nelson, Nellie Fox, you know, early win, Minnie Minoso, all these players from there. So I've always liked baseball. I always listened to baseball. I played some baseball, though not that great. And um, so I always liked it. And then I went, you know, off to college. And um, then I, you know, started my career. And um, in 2002, I had read in the Pensacola News Journal that Pensacola is getting a minor league baseball team. Now, growing up in, in Chicago, I didn't really follow minor league baseball at all. I, I had never really been to a minor league baseball game ever um, because I just didn't. And even when I was in Wisconsin, I didn't. And, um, you know, because if we're going to go to a baseball game, why not go to the Brewer game or the Cubs game or the Sox game and, and so on? So um, I was sort of excited they got a minor league team. I did not know there was independent and affiliate. I mean, I just didn't know. I, minor league's minor league. So I, I we, we went to the game. It was at the Pensacola Junior College. And um, it sat 300 people. And I saw the Pensacola Pelicans play the Selma Cloverleafs. And it was one of these just fun summer games. I felt like it was a pictorial out of a magazine. Just, you know, Americana, as you can describe it. Um, I enjoyed the game. The next day in the paper, it said the team had been sold. And I guess what now I know what happened uh, um, is to in, um, Montgomery had a pretty good independent team, as did Baton Rouge. But as teams started folding out, falling off, they were looking to play someone. So the Montgomery owner said, we'll own five teams so we can play. And they thought it'd be profitable, which they found out very quickly it was not. 
And so um, Pensacola was one of those teams. So um, I, I said, my gosh, the guy who bought the team, I saw him at the game. Uh, when you have 300 people, you I mean, you're going to see almost everyone at the game. And then the next day it said that the sale fell through. So I called the people that owned it and pretty much in about a 10 minute phone call to take over the debt. I owned an affiliated base, an, an independent baseball team uh, of a 16 league that about a week after I bought it, it became a 14 league because two of the teams could make it financially. Um, and that first year was brutal. Because, you know, our first game, my first game was owning one of the team's managers calls me and says, we're not showing up at the park because nobody's paid us and blah, blah, blah. So went through all that. My wife and I set up the chairs every day. We did the ticketing. My wife bought a four-color printer. We made all our own shirts, um, everything. We, you know, it's called just rolling up the sleeves and making it happen. The second year, we tried to run it again, but again, we had weakness of ownership with capital. So I, I re really knew to make it go, I had to find another league. I, I bought myself into the Central League, which was a better independent league at the time run by Miles Wolf, who does a great job. We still struggled though with teams either going affiliate or not making it. So Shreveport shuts down, Dallas shuts down, Montgomery goes affiliate. Um, then Jackson, Tennessee through Zeblin went affiliate. So um, we're, we're struggling with it. And then Central League um, sort of combined with the Northern League to form the American Association. So I, that was a good league, the American Association, wonderful owners. My, my concern was with our location. Um, we were sort of so far away. I mean, you know, we had to go to Sioux City, Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota, St. Paul, um, Lincoln, Kansas City. I kept thinking it's a matter of time before they throw me out of the league because of the travel. So th that's sort of how I got into baseball and just kept growing and growing and then ended up um, eventually um, building a stadium and eventually acquiring an affiliated team. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, another one of our affiliates, uh, the, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, they kind of have, you know, a wild travel schedule. Sometimes they go to Jackson, like you mentioned, and all of those places. So, you know, it's I, I, talking to their uh, to their media personality um, a little bit ago, Mr. Scott Kornberg, he kind of mentioned that to us about travel. But that's all going to change now with with plane flights for minor leaguers. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how the travel restrictions kind of come along. So, uh, yeah. But, yeah, we, we totally get it with the uh, with the travel. Um, these minor league guys talk about it. You hear them talk about the bus rides and how much they how much they're fun, but how much in the moment they hate them. So, you know, it's, it's always a fun topic. Um, anyways, uh, so first it was fun, Alex. So when we got the affiliated team to hear the guys whine about travel, when our guys would get on a bus and go to El Paso for crying out loud or <laughs> Kansas city. So, um, but I get it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely a part of being a minor league baseball player or, um, independent league player as, as Quinn mentioned. So, uh, rough times anyways, uh, it's all worth it eventually though for these guys, for sure. So uh, our first question here, Quint, um, uh, kind of starting uh, from a couple months ago here. Uh, take us back a few months ago. Of course, we know both of your teams were already affiliated with different teams. Um, the Blue Wahoos had the Minnesota Twins and the Boyd Snappers with the A's. Um, but from what you we know, being around um, MLB and MILB, we know it's a big family in which um, a lot of owners and operators as well um, they're kind of connected. They usually bounce ideas off of each other, you know, from team to team, you know, how do you do this? How'd you do that? Especially now with COVID, I think that's going to be big as well. 
Um, so yeah, uh, the question here is your thoughts on how the Marlins organization has operated at the minor league level lately up until this point and how you're feeling to be an integral part of this organization that has a stacked minor league system and it's going to be a big feeder system for the big league club for a long time. So your thoughts there. Well, I, I think, um, you know, independent baseball is really pretty cool because the owners, we really connected because we are so dependent on every team making it. I actually have found my own personal experience. We did more sharing of best practices in independent baseball than we've done in affiliated baseball. Now, one of my hopes is with the new structure of Major League Baseball, they're very interested in best practices. When I've talked to Morgan Sward and, and them, they're very interested in sharing best practices. So I think it'll even, even get better. You know, with, with the Marlins, we're, we're still new. We've certainly had good relationship with, with Jeff who's head of the minor league player development. But I, I think right now it's sort of an un, unfortunate time because I think major league baseball is so caught up in, are we going to play and with COVID and with the agreement. So we have not had much interaction at all with the Marlins uh, beyond Jeff. And, and he's been, he's been fine. Awesome. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Jeff DeGroote. Um, great guy. He's always around spring training on the backfield. It's a good guy to, Good guy to know. We saw that he was out with Pensacola late, uh, just recently uh, making a visit. So awesome. I'm glad to hear that uh, the relationship starting out well. I think that you will be hard-pressed um, to find a better group of guys than this this front office. They're, they're amazing. Um, they're great with media like me. Um, all of the owners uh, that have been here for a while, they can't say enough, and I think you're going to find that as well. Uh, but yeah, uh, we're going to go to both teams uh, a little bit um, separately. But before we get to that, um, I want to ask an overall question about Basically, your philosophy as an owner, um, Quint, you and your club um, were very gracious to send me a copy of one of your books um, called Building a Vibrant Community ahead of this interview. Um, thank you again for that. Um, I really enjoyed reading, especially the chapter on Pensacola. Um, and I'm going to ask a couple questions on that as well. Um, it really is amazing insight into the work that you did in that community, not just with baseball. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the book. It was a great gift. I, I'm glad to have received it. Uh, but the question here, um, basically, um, you know, the book talks about it, but I just want to get your, your overall philosophy as an owner. And in the book, you state it, why you think sports make communities stronger. What does sports do to build up communities? Um, I think, I think Alex, when you look at anything, um, people want programming and I would consider sports part of the programming. I think people like all sorts of programming and the goal of any community is to get people and now with COVID, it's tough, but the thing is to get people interacting. You know, it's ironic, and this will sound crazy to a lot of people, but air conditioning's got many, many advantages. One of the disadvantages, people quit going outside. And in the old days, people would be in their neighborhood, kids would be playing ball in front of their, their streets, you know, riding bikes with baseball cards in it, so it sounded like a motor or something. And, and so the whole goal, when you look at Gallup's research on vibrancy, is to program a community so people are out and about. And then that supports other things. So we saw baseball um, with 70 games a year, hopefully drawing you know, 250 to 300,000 people downtown as a real economic engine for, for the community. And for us in Pensacola, it really was uh, a confidence builder. You know, We don't have division one sports. We don't have a lot of things that other communities have. And in the past, our community is sort of like maybe got up to the goal line, but never scored, you know, the year for, for years. And so I, I think 
having the, the stadium downtown was a big win. And then for us to get an affiliated team was really, you know, quite remarkable for this community. It's like a boost in the arm. Like we're okay. We belong. I'm sure it's like a city getting a major league franchise. All of a sudden you're, you're, you're somebody. And I, I think that had a lot to do with our confidence. And then the other thing is that we planned on the stadium being sort of the main street of the town because our concourse, we have learned how to do so many, you know, we've done over 200 activities this year. We've actually had the stadium has been more occupied in 2020 than it was in 2019 when we played baseball. So, um, and of course, the thing that brought us the national attention from every TV station, the Today Show did a feature on it, was the Airbnb. And the Airbnb, I mean, we had people from Japan contacting us. We had, I think, um, over 77,000 hits on our website in the first two hours after ESPN ran the story. And of course, and we've done top golf, mini golf. We've done a lot of work with um, hospice for people that have lost a loved one. We donate the Airbnb to hospice patients so they can sort of have a lasting memory, particularly if they like sports. So I think having an affiliate team and, and getting um, the stadium built was just really a confidence builder sort of saying, you know, you're, you're okay. You're, you're doing some good things. Right. Exactly. It's super cool to see teams, your, your teams included that keep the community involved, you know, even though baseball isn't being played, you know, the field's still being used. You're still able to safely have people out at the park watching a movie or like you said, playing mini golf, or like you said, with the Airbnb, just, just some awesome creative ideas, you know, as much as not having baseball is unfortunate. It's been so fun for me to watch how teams like, like your teams included, of course, have, have made it work and have still been able to keep the community coming to the park despite no baseball. So definitely a credit to you guys on that. Uh, okay, so uh, I'm going to go through uh, the team specific. Um, I'm going to ask you first about your first team, um, the Blue Wahoos, a club, by the way, that just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. Uh, you bought this club to Pensacola in 2010. And reading through the way that you did it, um, it was unique and absolutely incredible. Uh, reading through the story in the book about it, it was awesome. So the second chapter of the book, as I mentioned, is all about um, how you basically began breathing life into the city on a variety of levels and overall made it a better place for people to come live, raise their families, work, do business, everything. Um, at the beginning of the chapter, you state that other plans, you know, before your involvement with Pensacola um, revolved around government-sponsored activity um, to rebuild the city. They were tried and tried, kind of didn't work. Funding, stakeholder options, they kind of fell through for a variety of, you know, political reasons. So the first question here, um, how proud were you looking back on what you accomplished in Pensacola and how you feel about sports making communities more vibrant? That, you know, aside from the politics that do have to play a part in what you accomplished in Pensacola, how proud were you that baseball and sports were kind of able to bridge that gap and tip the scales and have a big hand in the reclamation of the city? Well, I, I think what happened with, with the community when we went through the referendum, you know, I think we had a pretty good plan because it wasn't just a baseball stadium. We had 27 acres of toxic soil downtown from uh, one of the chemical companies that had been sitting there forever boarded up. You just drove by it. It was there so forever. You couldn't even walk on it. When Buck Showalter came to look where the stadium was going, we had to be very careful where to walk because of the chemicals. And um, when we got revved up, it was way more than just a stadium. It was a lot of other activities. And um, the city council voted almost unanimously to go for it. 
Um, but then we had one city council person, Marty Donovan, who really, you know, loved being the naysayers. And he led this charge about let's stop this stadium and why are we doing this? And so we ended up having a referendum, which was very painful. And I, I think it was good though, because I think then it had, people had to get revved up. And our, our whole deal was, this isn't about baseball. This is about creating a vibrant community that keeps our youth, our talent home. Pensacola, like many smaller communities, loses a lot of talent to big cities because there isn't um, opportunity and vibrancy. So our whole goal and our message was, we're gonna do something that shows the community's moving in the right direction. And we believe this is the first step in telling young people, you don't have to go somewhere else. In fact, when I was interviewed on TV after we won the referendum, they said, Quint, what would you like to tell our viewers? And I said, tell your children and tell them they can come back home now. And I think that was the real message of this whole thing. Now, I think it's been way more successful than I imagined or anyone imagined. I mean, I, I know what the performer looks like, and I know, you know our attendance is way better than we ever expected. The communities rallied way more than, than we ever expected and on having so many activities. I mean, I was there Friday night and it was youth track and field on the stadium. You know, we're trying to do youth fitness. They do yoga in the morning. You know, we don't lock the stadium. We keep it open almost all the time so people can come in and walk around and sort of do what they want. We've been very flexible with stadium usage. So, yeah, I, I think it's very exciting. Um, I think it's been an economic engine. I wouldn't have written the book, Alex, if I didn't have data. Since the stadium went in, when the book was written, it's gotten better. Our um, assessed property value has gone up 34%. And you know, in Florida, you're very limited. So that's all on either new building or rehab. That creates a lot of tax dollars. And tax dollars are good because that hits your police, your fire, your infrastructure. You know, cities can't make it if they don't aren't sustainable financially. We've had a 67% increase in private investment in the community. Um, we've um, Palafox, which is by the stadium, was named one of the 10 best streets in the United States by the American Planning Association. Um, and then we do a quality of life survey. And in a quality of life survey in 2008, um, only 20, I think 26 or 27% of the people thought we were moving in the right direction. And today it's 63%. So we methodically keep seeing the community get more attention and build up. And the beauty is um, in 2008, we asked young people, um, are there opportunities for you in the field that you love? And only 20% of the people said yes. Now it's nothing to write home about, but now we're up to 40 something percent. So again, it's methodically keep moving. As James Collins said, it's good to great. If you have a lot of sizzle, you normally have a lot of fizzle. So we just try to methodically keep moving the city forward. Right, right, definitely. And you can definitely tell, I mean, um, reading through from, from you know numbers, like Quinn said with data, um, from where the, the city was before he got there to where it is now, it's, it's a complete turnaround. It's really is amazing what his team was able to accomplish there. And you mentioned the soil. I have a question on that as well coming up. But um, I mentioned to you off air that I used to live in San Diego. And I remember when Peckle Park was being built and it was built in one of the roughest areas in town. Like it, it was just old factories that hadn't been used in forever. Of course, the Padres saved one with the Western Metal Supply Company, which is a testament to it. But that area, when they first were going to build it, from what I remember growing up there, they had a lot of problems. So, I mean, you make it work though, right? I mean, uh, and that park is gorgeous as is Pensacola, so. Well, I think I think location's important, Alex. And I think, you know, I'm not saying a stadium's the 
silver bullet. I'm saying it could be piece of it, but it's very on location. When we were building the stadium, they said, well, what if we move it over here, like six blocks from where it is? And I said, no. I said, location is vital to, to anything that, that you do. And, um, you know, parking, we under parked it and people were just stunned at first. How can you have a 5,000 attendance stadium and have 300 parking spots? And we said, you know, the first, you know, we did maps that said, here's five minutes away, 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away. One of the fun thing about our park is there's no parking. So you have to park and walk. And people like that. I, I remember in San Francisco, when the new um, San Francisco ballpark opened up, walking to the stadium, getting that excitement or the new San Diego park. Now, and, you know, because the push for many years was, oh, put them by the interstate so people can get easy on and off. That's not good for a community because it doesn't build the infrastructure, what you want to have happen around a stadium for us. So I think location is very vital when you look at any type of investment, including a stadium. Exactly, exactly. And, and I do have a question on this as well coming up um, regarding the location of Marlin Stadium. I want to get your thoughts on that. But first, um, I want to uh, go back a little bit here um, to the uh, process of getting the Pensacola Stadium uh, approved uh, and your plan approved. Um, you mentioned in the book, um, you know, between that time frame of when you drew up your planning to getting the referendum passed that you went through um, a, a rough time um, where two of your partners unfortunately passed away. Um, and you mentioned this as a kind of a time of reflection for you and kind of like your uh, quick, quick fire course in education on politics and, and what goes into the politics behind sports, right? So I wanna ask a question here, um, take us through that time for you. Um, I'm sure it was a really tough time, but what did that process teach you about the politics behind sports and your business and how have you put that to use in the future? I, I think it was a very difficult time for both my wife and I, because um, you know I was a special ed teacher for 10 years. Nobody rips a special education teacher. In fact, they say, thank you. And then I went to drug and alcohol treatment um, work. Nobody rips you for working with addicts and alcoholics. Then I got into working in healthcare with cancer patients and heart patients and, you know, trying to create great places for people to get care. And my gosh, people are thanking you for the care their family gets and the employees are happy. So I had never been involved in something like this stadium and this referendum um, where, you know, misinformation you know, if you work in a hospital, you, you, you can control the information. And all of a sudden, I never worked done with anything like this. I mean, you know, just people saying nasty stuff, um, you know, not just even accurate things, you know, um, information, you know, we pay um, six, almost six to $700,000 a year to use the stadium. People are saying we're giving them a stadium for a dollar, um, you know, I got some people thought that the two guys that died, I had them killed because they knew about my secret plan to take over land. Um, we had some really, this is back then when Facebook, and I guess it's just as bad, people could go on and anonymously put almost anything they wanted, whether it's accurate or not. My wife and I were getting hate mail at home telling us to move out of town. You know, we're carpetbaggers from Chicago. How dare we come in here? So there were many a moment where you had to sit there and say, why, why are we doing this? You know, it's easier for us just not to do it because we don't take any, we've never taken any money 
<laughs> Blue Wahoos personally. Uh, so why, why are we doing this? And it, it was a question. We had to one, get thick skin, which was really, really hard because, you know, I'm a sensitive person. Um, you don't want people saying things about you that are mean and nasty. Um, the attacks were, were sort of nasty. Um, uh, two things drove us, Alex. Number one is you had a group of people in this town that were bullies. And this was the, the city had tried to do another project downtown. And this group did the whole referendum and defeated that one. So my thought is if we don't beat them this time, they're going to just get more energy, more confidence. And this team's going to, this city's going to stay where it was. And even though we had nice history, we were losing young people right and left. You're only as good as your talent. Um, the, the second thing was values. I, I think there's those moments in your life when you got to say, what are my values? And for, for my wife and I, our, our values we thought were good. They were to make our community better, help keep young people here, and help revitalize a community. Um, and so I think it came down to, if, if you click in your values, you're willing to go through the discomfort. And I will tell you when the referendum vote was, I actually had a, they told me afterwards, never do this. I actually had a talk if we lost what I was gonna say. And it was gonna be a positive thing. I mean, it wasn't gonna be negative. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was, um, you know, people just get real courageous and, and being sort of nasty and it's just sort of sad. And now that we're far down the road, it's very hard to find people that remember voting against the stadium. It's extremely hard. Or for people that, um, you know, thought we were these bad, bad carpetbaggers. Um, you know, I used to joke. I, I used to say, at least I know if I ever move, I can leave for free. There's a lot of people that would pay a moving company to pull a truck into my driveway. Um, but now when they see that we've also built a children's hospital in town, we've also built a YMCA. I, I had a person, and I'll finish with this, Alex, that was extremely negative. She actually went on TV and was negative. It was just brutal. And about two years ago, my, we sponsored community talks on how to make your community better. And, and she came up to me. And, you know, every time I saw her, I stayed on the high ground, you know, even though she was nasty. Um, and she came up to me and she cried. And she said, I should apologize sooner, but I've just been so ashamed all these years. So now some, you just, that's the way. So I had to learn how to be really stay the course. And uh, Peter Senji in his book, The Fifth Discipline, says if you focus on the goal, you'll make it through the barriers. If you focus on the barriers, you'll hit the barriers and not achieve the goal. Yeah, awesome. And I think everybody in that community is super glad that you stayed the course, as you say. Um, and I think any naysayer is now far gone because what you did um, in that community outside of with baseball and outside of baseball, and we'll get to it here quickly, um, is incredible. And I'm going to get to it. Uh, but uh, the next question here, you kind of mentioned it already with the referendum. Um, you know, it goes before... Um, you know, the uh, lawmakers and uh, it passes with the exception of one person, which Quint stated. So um, you already mentioned it a little bit here, Quint, but can you elaborate a bit more for us? Uh, you mentioned in the book how massive of a moment that this was, um, how big of a moment in time it was, not only for yourself, but for this whole community. So can you take us through um, in reflecting back on that moment and how you felt that day when it finally went through? Well, you know, it's interesting, Alex, because until the first pitch was 
was throwing, I kept thinking, is this really going to happen? You know, because remember, we started this in 2005 and six, and the stadium opened 2012. So this was a six-year journey. Um, and so you're just almost wondering, is it really going to happen? And until that first pitch was thrown, but it was very exciting. You know, we had a full house like many new stadiums have. Um, and the, the game was ready to start. The newspaper did a great job. They actually took a picture of the first pitch, went back and reprinted it. So when people left, they got what the front page of the newspaper was going to look like the next day. And then right before the, um, you know, we, I didn't do it, but we had dignitaries. I stayed in my seat and didn't go down on the field, never talked. We had all the buddy that wants to talk, do the talk. And, and then um, I did go down on the field to help the um, groundskeeper pick up the chairs. And then right before the first pitch, the Blue Angels flew over the stadium. And so for our, our community to be in this stadium, um, we had people cry. We, we had a, a couple people, um, particularly poor people without a lot of money, because we opened up the stadium to the public before ever there was a game. They literally walked up on the steps, looked out over the water and cried because because of their financial condition, they don't go out to the beach. They had never really seen the water like the stadium allows it to see. So I, I thought it was a pretty magical time that um, that probably won't people, people, you know, it's one of those things that people that were there won't forget it. And people that weren't there feel they were there. It was just one of those, one of those things. I thought the Blue Angels is really what capped it off with excitement. Yeah. And again, Quinn, I was reading through what you just said as well. Um, you know, you had your tributes to Mayor Wibbs um, and of course, Vice uh, Admiral Fetterman, who were your partners. Uh, with the project uh, almost all the way through. Um, Pat O'Connor, who is the uh, commissioner of minor league baseball, was on hand, uh, made a speech for you guys, and then, of course, the Blue Angels. And growing up in San Diego, like I told you about, um, lived right near a military base, went to many air shows, and they are amazing. So that must have been amazing. I wish I was there with you guys. Um, so, yeah, it must have been, like you said, a, a magical time for not only yourself but for the city. Um, yeah, but uh, that was really just the start. For, for you guys, Quint. I mean, baseball in the stadium, as great as it was to get, it was just the start. Um, you know, the park was, you know, being constructed uh, while the park was being constructed. You know, you were still hard at work. Um, in the book, you talk about purchases you made um, of different structures. I really like the story you told of a restaurant you bought and had renovated for um, a great cook, but a guy that was uh, struggling uh, business-wise with financial uh, issues, um, but you wanted to keep his restaurant around because you thought it would draw people and it has uh, turned into a major hit of businesses that your wife ran inside some of the structures that you owned and bought um, and how people and other businesses just kind of flocked to you after you were engaged in this kind of activity. So I just wanted to hit on this, um, you know, continued personal involvement by yourself and your wife. You know, you stated in the book that you came into the project by accident and, you know, you just went through this years long process, painstaking process of getting the stadium, but you weren't going to stop there. You were going to continue to go to work for this community. So tell us about how important it was for you to stay involved in that regard and all of those things that you accomplished and how you think that spurred further growth for Pensacola. Well, I think Alex, our um, mission statement of the Blue Wahoos is to make, improve the quality of life in the community. We have ba and baseball is now part of our mission statement. Our, our vision statement is to make our area the best place to live in the world. I think everyone should think that. Then we have our values. And I think if your mission statement is to improve the quality of life for people in the community, then it's not just about baseball. 
And, and when we brought in a lot of expertise, like Ray Gindros from Urban Design, who did the Pittsburgh area, um, and he talked about you need a great intersection. And, and what, what happens is James Fallows and Deborah Fallows in their book, Our Town, found that almost any small and mid-market city that they saw a major improvement, there was what they call an impact investor. And usually it's somebody that lives there, has money, and decides to invest it back in the community. Well, we, though we, that we weren't from there, we decided to invest back in the community. So you, ha you have to like kickstart something, prime the pump. So I remember when my wife opened up her coffee shop olive oil store in an old building that had been sitting vacant down on the corner of Palafox and Maine, people walked in and said, I can't believe this is in Pensacola. And then you start setting it. And, and then what happens is the early investors, Alex, don't make much money on the project, but then you show that it works. So now, you know, that it usually go with a lot of internal investors, but then other people stepped up. And so we went from having a Palafox four, five, six block area where there were empty buildings, empty buildings, empty buildings, where now there's no empty buildings. In fact, now what you have, Alex, is called a thickening of the street. It means people can't get on the main street, so they go one block over. So I, I think that's, that's really important because um, what you're really trying to do is really make it a better community for all. So our, our not-for-profit really got into things like training and development of small businesses. Because, you know, this whole idea of attracting some giant with a bunch of incentives normally doesn't work. Most jobs are created by people that are already there. So our, our loyalty is very much to small business owners. And, you know, that's sort of who we are right now. Even after I sold my company, we have a bookstore. And many of the things, Alex, we don't buy to keep. We like to get them running. Like our, our couple of business, we took an old brick building, redid it. Then a, a, a hair, hair designer got in there for a salon. And then after he found out it was working, we sell them the building. And we normally sell the a building as either what it was appraised at or less. For our first restaurant we built in a pretty much um, black neighborhood, um, our goal was to have black ownership. So when we found the right uh, minority ownership, we then sold them the, the building. So our, our goal was, ne I've never wanted to be a property developer. I want to be a community developer. Properties are but tactics. And then once we sell the building, then it's paying taxes, it's being used, then we can take that money and fund it to, to something else. So that's sort of our, our strategy. And we've been lucky enough now to talk to other smaller communities um, that sort of see Pensacola as someone they, they can learn from, which is really gratifying. Yeah, uh, you heard it there, guys. I mean, just champion philanthropy um, from this gentleman and his team. I mean, like, like he says, just giving back to the people and making a better place to live for everybody. That's what he's about. Not just baseball, not just a, a stadium, which is gorgeous, but a gorgeous city overall with the inclusion of sports. So amazing. Um, I love the insight. I absolutely love reading through the book. Like I said, um, it's it really is awesome insight. Um, into yourself and everything that you guys have accomplished and really just the ability to say, it's not about me. It's about, it's about making a better place for everybody else to live. So really awesome. Um, I really, really did enjoy it. So uh, one more question here, kind of relating to, to Pensacola and you mentioned it um, kind of before, before Quint on location. Um, you know, you talk about an intersection, you have to have one of those. And um, then of course the um, location of your stadium. Um, I want to kind of throw this in and get your thoughts on something. Um, if you can, 
Um, you know, I want to talk about Marlins Park, about the stadium that the Marlins built. A great, great place to watch a baseball game. I'm sure if you've been, you would agree. Um, but the surrounding area in which this park is built, the Marlins, when they built this park, you know, Quint, they were strapped for a location. They tried to work with Wayne Huizinga. Um, he wasn't really willing to do so. Um, he went to other outside sources. He really didn't want to work with Jeffrey Loria and David Sampson. So um, ultimately it came down to losing the team to another city, which I am very glad didn't happen, or going to one of two sites, one of be which being the Orange Bowl, uh, the site of the old Orange Bowl. So um, of course that's where the stadium is now. Stadium's gorgeous, like I said, but basically the area around the stadium is a neighborhood. It's Little Havana. Um, you have, you know, really old businesses, a lot of which have gone out of business since my last visit down there because they just can't make it financially. Um, and a lot of the um, houses are lower income housing. So my question here, Quint, is now this new ownership group comes in and they have to make the best with what they have. Samson and Moria, you know, when they built the stadium, they promised some economic um, uh, turnarounds for the area, building up restaurants, putting in you know, stuff like that and attracting business to the area. And it really didn't happen. So now Derek Jeter and Jared Sherman, um, I'm sorry, Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman are here and they have to kind of make the best with what they have. So my question here, um, based off of your expertise, give me an opinion if you can, what do you think they can do to help this area become more of a destination with baseball, but not just for baseball, but to really turn this full, whole area around, which is really struggling. Give me an opinion if you can, please. Well, well, I think I think when you look at bigger cities, they're a little different than small and mid-market cities. So we're we're trying to bring three to four thousand people down. Mm -hmm. So the interstates and the traffic isn't near as important. Um, and again, it depends. Everybody's a little different. You know, Miller Miller Stadium is off interstates. There's really nothing around it. Nothing around it. It's just a place where all these Wisconsin people can drive, park, tailgate, and leave. But that's that's the nature of the beast. I think um, I don't know Miami all that well. I mean, this is sort of new to us. Um, but but I think a few things. I, I think certainly people want to get in and out for some areas. So I, I think you for you have to have your more highway infrastructure for big cities because you're bringing forty thousand people down. You hope. I think it just it takes a long time, and it's very hard. Because from what I've heard, I think about Mr. Sherman, who owns the Marlins. He's nothing but a class guy. Jim Pollitt, who are the twins, who's a wonderful owner, speaks highly of him. So I just think it takes time. And then it takes the sensitivity. So if you look at many parks, Alex, right around them, they start putting up first floor retail, third and fourth floor apartments, offices. It's pretty cool. But then the fight you get is when now you're gentrifying the neighborhood because you're forcing people out. So it's a it's like driving a nitroglycerin truck for crying out loud. There's a darn if you do and darn if you don't. So if you do the infrastructure, so I, I think you've just got to take baby steps and, and see what see what you can do with it and, and real and be patient. You know, I, I tell people here in Pensacola, you know, because they're so impatient on things happening. I said, you know, if you look at Disney World, they just didn't pop all of them in at one time. They started like with Magic Kingdom. You know, then they then they went to like, you know, the various ones. And so the same thing with Miami. You know, you sort of got your Magic Kingdom in the stadium. But now you got to figure out what goes around it. And it, it just takes time, takes perseverance. Um, it, takes, it takes community support. Because, you know, people moan and groan and they lose a team, but they lose a team if they don't support the team. 
So they have to sometimes hold up the mirror. So I, I just think every city is a little bit different. Every community is a little bit different. But the neat part about Miami, it's very much like New York in many ways, the rich heritage of the different nationalities. Um, my wife and I went to a Yankee game. Um, D.D. Gregarious played for the Blue Wahoos and Joe Espada was their bench coach. Carlos Mendoza's first bench coach. And, you know, we go in and we pay like we shouldn't. We're stunned at how much it costs. So like it's 200 bucks a ticket, by the, but we're sitting in the second row, sort of far back. Now, Kano was the second baseman. And on one side of us, we had people with, a, 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 I think, a Mexican flag flying. The other side, we had some guys talking, bro- talking the Bronx. And n- neither side even spoke the same language in the first inning. By the third inning, they were giving each other high fives. And by the sixth inning, they were buying each other beers. And what I love about baseball, it creates the melting pot that we all want. You know, we don't have sweets at our stadium. Um, so we want everyone to mingle, everyone to be together, everyone to sit together. Um, Bubba Watson sits right down. He doesn't have a suite. He sits right down in the seats like everybody else. Um, that's what we want to create. And so I think that's the beauty about Miami. To me, the stadium and the park can represent exactly what they want to have and what the whole community is people that are different, all getting together for one reason, and that's to enjoy each other and then hopefully have a great experience. Yeah, for sure. I, I, don't, I don't think anything speaks better to what you just said than the World Baseball Classic. Um, when the Marlins have had the World Baseball Classic, Classic, they've gotten to have it most years. Um, both ownership groups have done an awesome job with it. Um, I was there a couple of years ago um, and, you know, it was a Dominican Republic against Venezuela game. And just the different, the, like it, it was a completely different experience than any other baseball game I've ever been to. People were um, told to bring instruments. Um, you know, they were told, they were encouraged to bring their flags. And then, like Quinn said, you kind of have that melting pot. I, I realized a couple fans that were sitting not far away from me, you know, they, they were rivals when the game began. They were each rooting for a different team. But, yeah, by the end of the game, they were high-fiving and congratulating each other. So the way that, that sports bring people together um, in that regard, especially from the cultural standpoint, to bring different cultures together and have them men, that's not on any better display than at the World Baseball Classic. I really, really love that event. Yeah, I think, too, Alex, you get different ages too. I think it's sort of cool. It's just really neat. I mean, that, that, you know, it's sort of like what we've tried to do in our community with our civic con, where we bring people together. You know, you can have different political beliefs, but who, everybody agrees we should have great education. Everyone agrees we should have safe, uh, safety. Everyone agrees we should have opportunity for people, affordability for people. So in essence, you know, we can almost agree on so many things. That's what we should be focusing on, what we agree on, not what we disagree on. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, you know, everybody can agree on baseball, I think. I think that's what it comes down to, that if you're a fan, doesn't matter where you're from or what language you speak, you love the game. And when you're among other people who love the game as much as yourself, I think that that creates uh, some awesome relationships. All right, Quint, um, uh, that's all I have on Pensacola for now, but I did want to state, uh, again, I don't think it can be overstated. You know, reading through your story, I let out a couple of audible wows. Like, wow, wow, he did that. That's amazing. And my girlfriend sitting next to me, she's like, what are you talking? I was like, you got to read this book. So I'm going to have her read it as well. But, uh, you know, what, what you were able to accomplish, you know, in that community um, goes well beyond baseball. I stated that um, absolute hero in my eyes and uh, a driving force in recreating an entire city 
into a destination. Um, I cannot wait to visit the city myself uh, this year. I've been there a couple of times, but I really want to come and see now that I know your story, I want to come and see with my own eyes exactly what you were able to do and, and, and the story you were able to build there. So um, it's going to be really exciting. So uh, yeah, amazing. Okay. Um, so you, you, coming up to this part, part of your life and your career, um, you know, a couple, a couple years ago here, you see Pensacola thriving. Um, you know, you've recently, you know, stated just yourself about, you know, everything that you're able to accomplish where of course the work never probably never stops for you, but you know, that Pensacola is Pensacola now. And now you're, you're de devoting your attention to another city. Okay. Uh, and it's Beloit, Wisconsin. Um, I want to read a uh, recite a quote that you gave not too long ago um, to uh, a newspaper, I believe. Um, and it kind of shed light on it for me about why you chose Beloit. Um, and the quote reads like this. It says, Beloit and Janesville struggle from the same thing. When they talk about the benefits, a lot of the times you hear how close they are to Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago. Well, I'd like that to be changed for Beloit. And instead of talking about how easy it is to go other places, I'd love for people in the, those bigger cities, places like Madison and Milwaukee to say, boy, we're only an hour away from downtown Beloit. We need to check that out. I think Beloit can be the hipster place to be. So judging by that, it kind of sheds light on why you chose to do this with Beloit. You saw more potential for that city than, you know, people going other places to do their business and to have their recreation. So uh, yeah, if you could just elaborate on that, um, you know, you have this new brand new stadium. I think it's going to be amazing. It's nearing its final construction, ABC Supply Stadium. Um, I think that's going to be the center point as the Blue Wahoo Stadium was in Beloit, but I think it's going to go well beyond that again, as you did with Pensacola. So if you could first tell us why, the why behind the expansion to Beloit for you, and how have you begun to put your plan into action? Well, yeah, as I said before, I have children and grandchildren in Rock County. For those of you that don't know, Beloit and Janesville are like 10, 10 miles apart. And so that's how close they are. There should be sister cities, if you ask me. And then Rockford is right below um, Beloit. Um, my parents had a cottage in southern Wisconsin in the summer. And almost every cottage is a blue collar lake. You know, people from Fairbanks, Morris, and all these companies. Bloit Corp, they, their cottages, the hourly workers and wanted a cabin by a lake where at Turtle Lake, where my parents owned the tavern there. So I got to know so many people. When I was working in special ed, one of the school districts, two of the school districts I was working with were Beloit and Beloit Turner. When I was at um, the Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center, we had a facility in Beloit. When I was at the hospital, we were involved in Beloit. So Beloit's always been near and dear to my heart, as is Janesville and Rockford and Edgerton and Evansville, Melton, Clinton, many of those communities around Wisconsin. About four years ago, I got a call from minor league baseball that said, Quint, is there any way you could get involved in Beloit? We really see what you've done in Pensacola. And they've got a well-intentioned, not-for-profit community board. They, they just don't have the cash it takes to run a team these days. And if they can't get a stadium, they're going to lose that team even if there wasn't a contraction. You know, people thought Beloit was going to lose. Beloit was going to lose a team even before contraction was announced because they couldn't pass the most minimum facility standards. So um, I talked to the people in Beloit, and it just wasn't the right time. I think they were still thinking that maybe somebody would build them a stadium, you know, like public money, things like that. And, you know, it just wasn't a good time. In the meantime, there had been a group that had been trying to get some of the more wealthy people in Beloit, um, preferably Diane Hendricks, who owns ABC Supply and is just a like just wonderful, wonderful person who's built the Y there. You know, she 
built hotels there. He just loves Beloit. And um, so some owners of other teams had come in to talk about if they ran the team, what it would be like. It wasn't a good connection. Um, it just wasn't a cultural fit because they were talking about franchise value and money. And that's not what Diane was looking for. So I came back sort of like end of the game. They called me up and they said, would you be interested? And I said, I would be, you know, because Belay is the only place I would do it because I don't do baseball to make money. I do it to make a better community. And, um, and I love Diane Hendricks. She has done so many incredible things in that community. And um, I didn't know her, but I knew um, my kids and her kids know each other, my grandkids and her grandkids know each other. My grandson works at one of the restaurants she owns. So we knew of each other. Um, I don't know if she knew of me. I knew of her. So they arranged um, a, a meeting. And one of the things I did is I sent her eight years of pro formas on the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Because one of her complaints from some about some of the other owners is they're very close-knit on finances. So I sent her everything. Um, and my wife and I went to Beloit to have dinner with her. I also did a 15 minute video for her to see before we got there, just who Rishi and I were and what we're about. And we sat down and um, she just, at first has a very rough time imagining the Beloit team being successful in Beloit. I had the same problem here. Our independent team played at the, the college stadium. We draw 700, 800 people. So people would say, how can this work? when only seven or 800 people currently go to a game now. The same exact things they heard about Pullman Field and Beloit. You know, no one goes, look at this, there's 200 people. How are you going to make it? So um, I just told Diane what I thought a stadium could do for downtown because they're way ahead of Pensacola. Because of Diane's work, they've already got hotels, restaurants. I mean, they're, but you want bookends. You want a reason for people to walk from one place to another place. And I think, I, I thought the stadium could be the Southern bookend. And so Rishi and I talked to her about it. Um, we told her how much money we put in to start. Um, and we'd share our financials and we'll never take a dime out of Beloit. And um, we left though, really my wife and I both said, we do, this is not gonna happen. I actually thought Alex, I had a win. I'm gonna get all this credit for trying, but not lose any money. So I, I thought, this is great. They're going to thank me for trying, realize it didn't happen. But no one in baseball can say Quint didn't give it a good shot because I was doing this on behest of minor league baseball. And then, I don't know, maybe a week later, we got a phone call and they said, Diane's ready to move forward. And we were sort of stunned on the whole deal. And then, of course, it got real tricky because when we went to the, mid, the winter meetings that year to get our everything approved. We had paid our transfer fee. All of a sudden, the Midwest owners decided not to approve my ownership transfer, which got really sort of interesting. So then the question is, should Diane still build a stadium if they want to approve my ownership transfer? Luckily, I know some people that are in Major League Baseball, and they said, Quint, if, if Beloit has a brand new stadium with its location, we can't imagine you not having an affiliated team. So then Diane and I flew to New York to meet with Dan Halem, Morgan Sword. And, you know, when she walks in, they sort of know who Diane Hendricks is, you know, the wealthiest self-made woman in the world um, worth $8 billion in her own wealth. Um, 
you know, besides Cohen came in, she would have been like the wealthiest baseball person. And, um, she, but she's very understated, very understated. Just, uh, she is who she is, a Midwest roofer. And she walked in and she just showed them the blueprints and said, I'm going to build this. And they said, if you build it, we will, we will be there. But David said, we'll be there at opening day if you build it. Um, but so, so that's what kicked in the stadium. And then you have people like Dennis Connerton, who's been with the Stampers forever, that's putting in a rather large chunk of private money. So outside of the city, which is very gracious of giving some land, which isn't is pretty vacant now anyway, downtown, um, this is an entirely privately funded stadium. Wow. Yeah, some awesome insight there on the stadium. I mean, it, it looks spectacular. I, I look at the videos that that they put out on social media. Um, it, it, well, we want it to be, we want it to do for baseball what Camden Yards did for Major League Baseball. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely has that look too from the outside. I, I was noticing that too, that it has that kind of old time stadium look. Uh, Diane likes brick. I mean, how many, tell me the last time a totally brick stadium was built. Right? I, it, yeah, it definitely looks like she, I mean, it's great though because you guys can capture that, you know, that historic essence of baseball too. And then of course also have a stadium that's going to be from what I see well above PBA. So I think this is going to be a, a great, a great place for, for players and fans to come visit. It looks amazing. I can't wait to get there myself. Um, so you kind of already stated, you kind of already hit on my next question um, already. Um, you also stated in the book that what you did in Pensacola, you looked a lot at Beloit, other cities as well, but you stayed Beloit as well. So it's kind of interesting that you go from the contrast of completely remaking Pensacola to kind of putting the cherry on top of Beloit in what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Alex. Beloit, I don't want to, Beloit's, we're just a small piece of Beloit. Um, I, I do think we bring a good national attention because, you know, we're pretty good at getting national attention. I've already Josh Sitton's one of my good friends. He played for the Packers for nine years. He's excited about getting a lot of people into Beloit. Um, at Beloit, we're, we're just like you say, we're just a one step in Beloit. But I think it is a step. And until you, I think until people have the blue wahoos, they didn't understand the national publicity. Like you say, like with your podcast, people have no idea what a baseball team brings to to an organization you know for example with the minnesota twins every tuesday night on on tv and radio they um had a contest on when a trip to pensacola so we do a lot of that so we'll do a lot of that with miami we'll have contests that in beloit win a trip to miami and miami will win a con we'll have a contest down there you know hey it's a little hot come to wisconsin have some great time We'll get Pensacola in it. So we do a lot of contests throughout the year to co-mingle the, the organizations. And, you know, and the Marlins are, are very fortunate. and We're fortunate. It's a 10-year agreement we're excited about. But, you know, it's pretty interesting. When Ballpark Digest said, who were the biggest winners in the relocations? They said the Marlins were the biggest winner because they've got, um, you know, a well-run organization in Jacksonville. We're familiar with them. We've both been in the Central Southern League together. They've got Jupiter with Jimmy O'Toole. They've got Jacksonville with Batty. And, and now they've got the two, you know, high A and double A, the same ownership group, because our whole goal is to make it seamless. And they like that idea. You brought it before the thing that, you know, a player can go from Beloit to Pensacola, same ownership. That's going to be pretty smooth and then pop down to Jacksonville. So I, I think for the Marlins organization, these next 10 years can be really a, a wonderful a wonderful time to build Marlin, that Marlin baseball brand. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, when, when Ballpark Digest first put it out, we stated they were talking about, um, you know, Asheville, which uh, from what I understand is an awesome place. And Quint says great things about Asheville. But then it came out with Beloit. And I thought, I said it before, I thought it was really an advantageous point for the Marlins having the same owner of both teams. And as Quint stated, you can kind of get, you know, we want to do it safely, of course, with the distance and travel, you know, restrictions and stuff like that. But with Beloit, we're not, the Marlins minor league system isn't central to the Southern states. We can still in a safe manner, bring Marlins baseball to a different area of the country. And like Quint said, he's going, going to enter tie and he has place plans to enter tie. You know, it's, it's hot in Miami. Come up to, to Beloit. I think that that's amazing planning. And I'm looking forward to everything. Mine, you can throw a fishing line in, you know, the, our stadium here is right on the water. Yep. In fact, the, the Reds and the Twins after both had to put in no fishing on game days for their players because <laughs> Devin Smeltzer of the Twins is like a professional angler. And, and in Beloit, you know, we're right on the river there. So they're going to be able to go pop out and throw out a fishing line if they want to. Yeah, the, the Rock River. Yeah, fishing with the fish. How's that sound? That sounds, sounds good to me. I like that. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, so, uh, again, we, uh, we love the look of the park. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on one more thing on the park real quick. Um, you know, of course, we hope, and I'm hoping against hope, that, you know, minor league baseball is going to start on time. Um, you know, they are talking about even if baseball starts on time, there could be different start times for the different levels of baseball. Triple A could start before double A and single A and stuff like this. And then you have everything with the players association that's going on. I mean, we're hoping for the best there, but I want to ask about the park. Um, you know, obviously it's on schedule worst case comes to worse. And we, we are, um, facing a, um, delay in the start of your season in single A advance. Will the park still open on time? And if there's no baseball, what kind of activities will you have? Well, let me, Beloit new park won't be open till middle of July. So we are always planning on playing in Pullman field. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll probably be maybe, you know, ready for opening day if it's July. Um, you know, Alex, this whole process, what we've learned for your own, own people's own well-being is what you can control and what you can't. And we can't control COVID. We could a little bit, but not to the point you'd like to. Um, we just want to be good team players. And what we've said from the beginning, um, we just want to be good team players with Major League Baseball. And we'll start when they tell us to start. And until we start, we're going to have just, at least in Pensacola, a ton of high school and college games in our stadium. Now, because the, the Beloit Stadium won't be done until July, um, Beloit Stadium is built for multi-use events. You know, we build things now. And I know that whole thing, old multi, you know, when they think of old multi-use parks, they don't understand. They think of the old ballparks, you know. Uh, we, we have the division two college football team that plays at blue wahoo stadium you know so so we sort of get that and and beloit's built the same way and and beloit in fact instead of private suites we just have large suites up to 300 people air conditioning winterized in the winter so we you know i think beloit stadium might actually open up with a concert versus a baseball game you know i i just think you got to set that tone right off the bat that this is what we want to call the central point of the city. This is where every, we want every run to start and end at the stadium. We want every you know not-for-profit event to start at the stadium. And so I, I think we'll just play it by ear and see where we go, and um, you know just be good team players with the community and good team players with the um, with Major League Baseball. And see, the fact that we don't lay off staff is a little different than many. 
because because it seemed like Jackson. It's sort of ironic. Two, I think, of the three minor league teams that didn't lay off staff are both part of the Marlins organization because we didn't lay off staff in Beloit or Pensacola, nor did Jacksonville. So that's pretty cool. That says a lot, I think. Um, so we'll just play it by ear, and when we open, we open, and we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all a lot of us can do right now, you know, all around baseball. Is you just don't – there's so many uncertainties. You just, you just kind of have to go with what's happening. And when well, we were asked one question, Alex. Major League Baseball did a poll, and I don't know how it turned out. They asked minor league owners, would you open if you couldn't have fans? And because, you know, minor league baseball fans is such a big deal – we said yes, we would, even with no fans or no revenue, because we keep all our staff anyway. So it doesn't matter. So we, we just want baseball. And we'd like fans. And now our city's pretty good for movie nights. We drew over 1,600 every movie night. You know, we limit it to that's our maximum. For concert, we have about 1,600. Um, now, so I, I think we could probably do about 1,600 pretty comfortably for for baseball. Our, our netting is the whole entire stadium. So we wonder if we do really have to stay six rows back because I think that's for players going into the crowd. They can't do it. But I'm talking to Peter Woodfork from Major League Baseball, who heads minor league operations. They, they seem to be very open to working with minor. They want minor league baseball to be successful. It doesn't do anybody any good not to have baseball be successful. For sure. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that fans are allowed back at games because, uh, you know, as glad as I was that we had the major league season in the way that we had it with the success that the Marlins had, I'm missing minor league baseball, man. It's, yeah. it's my passion. Yours too. Um, it's funny, you know, Miguel Rojas played here. He yeah. was in the Cincinnati organization. He, yeah. he was a utility infielder with D.D. Gregarious starting at shortstop. So, you know, um, well, um, Chad Wallach played here. So we know Chad, um, you know, Diaz played here. So, yeah, we, we always and, – and the neat part is we are sort of considered in the Marlins and the Tampa um, TV network. So when you go to our channels, that there are TV networks. So we're real excited about the um, – and I, I love the fact, too, there's no more two-year deals. Yeah. Because two-year deals don't allow you to work well together. A 10-year deal really is going to allow us to get to know each other. We've talked to Jeff about cross-training – can we send our staff to Miami? We've done that every year where we send our staff to the major league team and everybody meets with their, you know, their person who does their job that creates that relationship. Your grounds crew in Miami has been great. They've been helping us pick out the turf in, in Beloit. Our goal is to have the exact same infield and exact same turf in Pensacola and Beloit as you have in Miami. Yeah. The exact same synthetic turf, the exact same clay composite so when a person plays in Beloit or Pensacola they're going to play exactly on the exact same feed surface as the Marlins stadium that's awesome imagine how much that that it seems like a small step guys but imagine how much that's going to do from a player development standpoint that they're playing on the same turf that they're going to play at in their home park I think that's absolutely incredible and as we stated Quint owns both teams so you're going to have it at two different affiliates Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Um, I think that's amazing insight. And thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this. And like you said, 10 years, it's going to really let us build that relationship, really let the Marlins build the relationship with you um, and both of your teams. So um, yeah, like you said, two years, you know, you barely get to know each other. I think in two years, you know, it's my, two minor league seasons, 
what do you get out of it? So I'm glad that it's a lengthy deal. Like you said, um, I think it's going to be great. And I think the relationship is already off to a good start. And I think it's going to continue to be that way. So uh, I want to get to one more on Beloit Quint. Um, and it's on the fact that with this new stadium coming this year, the team's going to rebrand. Um, the team has been the snappers with Snappy the Turtle since 1995. Um, and now you're going to get a new name. So I want to get your thoughts on why it's important for you at this point in the franchise uh, franchise's history to rebrand it and what you think uh, as far as that being an important step to take. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting deal because, you know, when the team was announced they were going to be um, go away, nobody, there was no petition. No, nobody seemed to care they were going away. It was sort of interesting. And then they get caught up in, in a name sometimes, which I understand. Sort of like when Florida Marlins went to Miami Marlins, you get that, that same thing. When you look at Beloit, for those that aren't aware of it, Beloit's a very small market. Beloit's probably one of the smallest populations in all of baseball. There's only 35,000 people that live in the city of Beloit. About 100, maybe 10,000 in the entire county. Okay. Now in Pensacola, we're at almost 350 to 400,000 in our, in our market. So when you look at the market there, now you have Rockford, but you have a state line. And in the past, it's been very hard to get people to go across state line. I don't know why we hope to solve that. So when you look at Beloit, and it's a very unusual deal in Beloit, for those that aren't aware, Beloit Stadium, once it's built, is turned over to us. The, the gateway who's running the team. We're taking full responsibility for the stadium for the next 20 years. That means we pay utilities, we pay insurance, and we pay all capital improvements. So if you look at right now, what's happening with all the new facility standards, everybody's running their city saying we need more money to upgrade our stadium because they're city owned or county owned. Most stadiums are municipality owned. So they pay the utilities, they pay the insurance. And when you need a new scoreboard or new turf or anything, renovation, you go to the city or the county and they bond the money and they keep it up. So if you look at Beloit, if you look over the next 20 years, we believe we're going to have to change turf out at least once, maybe twice. We change out our video boards here about every five years because technology is becoming obsolete. You know, we're already, we were on our second scoreboard the sixth year into this thing here because of technology. If you look at food and equipment to build, uh, you probably have about $1.1 million of kitchen equipment into a stadium. Now we know it's not going to last 20 years. Then you look at seats. You know, we're, we're talking about Beloit, which is going to be a little bit in the winter. So you're going to have some wear and tear on, on your seats. So you know you're going to change seats out. So when we looked at the performa, where you get revenue, for, and, and remember, all our money is staying in Beloit. We just don't want to sit here and have to say, guys, we got to let the stadium erode because there's no money. We're, we're not an empty pit here. My wife and I are just putting millions every year into a stadium. Um, our Wahoo team, once we put all our money in up front, is self-sustained. So when we had to put a half a million dollars into the locker rooms this year, so they're majorly hitting the new facility requirements, we could pay for that out of the money that we've generated from the Wahoos. Um, but we, now, so you look at Beloit and you look at your revenue streams, um, you're gonna have corporate sponsorship. 
But again, uh, here our corporate sponsorship is over 2 million. We will not see 2 million in corporate sponsorship in Rock County, Wisconsin. Then you look at sales, ticket sales. Well, ticket sales are important, but you know, we're, we're capacities at 3,500. We don't think, you know, you got to build it not for year one or two, but year four, five, six, seven, and eight, because everybody has a good first couple of years. And if you don't keep it up, you, you, you erode. So you got season tickets and then you have food and beverage. Well, food and beverage are very, very dependent on local owners, local people. So most, almost 99% of your corporate sponsors to 100% are local revenue. Almost 100% of your ticket are gonna come from people within a 30 to 40 mile radius. All your food's gonna become, so the fourth biggest revenue producer for a team is merchandise. And you can't make it on local merchandise sales. You've got to make it on national, not, not everyone, but we do. We don't have that option of having all, you know, the Blue Wahoos sell about $450,000 a year worth of merchandise. The first year we did $750,000. Um, and, and, and so we do pretty well. So if you look at the snappers, for us to not lose money, we've got to perform. And I'll send it to you, Alex. It's wide open. I, I, I have no secrets. Here's what it looks like. We've got to generate between three dollars and $400,000 in merchandise. Okay. The snappers have averaged about $37,000 in merchandise. Even some of the people that are protesting the name of the change haven't bought merchandise in four years. So we're just not selling merchandise. I love the snapper name. I like turtles. If you talk to anybody about me, I've got turtles everywhere. I'm not an anti-turtle guy. Um, it's just the fact that when we did market research, which we did, we didn't see a big fit with the snapper name. And, and, and so then we looked, we, we asked what people thought. We were sort of surprised when only 30% of the people said the snappers and the other 70% said a whole ray in it. They wanted to change it to state line team, you know, Rock County team, Southern Wisconsin team. Then you got all these names. So we, we set a deadline for names. And, you know, I feel bad about because you talk about when I got beat up here in Pensacola, all five of those names came from local Beloit people. And the fact that we've got people ripping those names that people came up with, that's hurting their neighbors. Yeah. And that bothers me because I don't think that's kindness that we need in our city, in our country. You can say you don't like a name, but you don't have to make fun of, of the name or the people that put that name in because these are human beings. And I don't like being bullied. And to me, some of those... Get, Verge on the thought of bullying some people. So what if somebody wants to name it Cheese Balls or Supper Clubbers? You know what I mean? That's what they want to name it. And, and so then, then I think people very much underestimate the trademark challenges of names. Um, I will tell you that most of the names that we've seen, you, we have letters for minor league baseball. I had a guy just call me and said, Quint, it's a no-brainer. It's got to be the Eagles. It's just got to be the Eagles because we have Eagles here on the Rock County. They're a great bird. They represent all the great things. They're Americana, the Eagle. I like Eagles. I do. But the challenge is, and he said, and I've searched, there's not one minor league team named the Eagles. Yeah. And yes, because you can't, because they're trademarked. So I think you have to pick the right name. You go through it. And in my book, you'll, you'll read a chapter called Consent Versus Consensus. And what it says, Alex, is in healthy communities, those that don't get their way still look for the greater good 
and are supportive. So I might not like something that somebody in Pensacola does, but it, the city council might vote to do put a boat company downtown that I don't think should be downtown. But once it's downtown, I'm going to do everything I can to support it because it doesn't benefit if it doesn't make it. So we have a we have our five finalists. We always are open to looking at using others for fun, like the mullets, those types of things. Even teams, I, I think, you know, what is the River Rockers? Yeah. You can have some fun with that if you can get it past minor league trademarking. Um, but, but the reality is we had a deadline. We have the name of the teams and it'll be one of those five names. Now, what we did get from Major League Baseball, which was very unusual, is they allowed us to keep the trademark, the snappers, so we can still utilize them. So we'll probably, you know, see how it goes. But yeah, I, I think it's been sort of interesting, you know, and then you get spun. I mean, I got some names from people that said, you're just a money gouger guy trying to come in here and, you know, suck money out of Beloit and all you care about is money because I'm changing the name. Oh, come on now. And I wrote them and said, you know, look at the performer, look at this. Now, if you're going to protest and not come to a game because you don't like the name, you know, that happens. But I, I hope, I don't think it's good for Beloit. I don't think it's good for employees. Um, but, you know, you do what you do. We got, um, you know, because my wife and I take some big, strong stances here. Um, I led the effort to take down a 43-foot statue um, commemorating the Confederacy here and white supremacy this last year. Hmm. And I'm in the South, Alex, and, and I led that charge. And I got some pretty nasty notes. And people tell me they're not going to come to a Blue Wahoo game because I took the Confederate, had the Confederate statue down. If I'm on the right side, I'll take the consequences. And, you know, let's, let's have some fun. Let's enjoy it. You know, you got a new stadium. You're going to have a new high A affiliation. You got uh, uh, an owner that has enough experience and cash to keep it running well. Um, gosh, let's be grateful for what we got instead of looking at what we want. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my thoughts here on this, um, you know, I, I think rather than just being, you know, like Quint mentioned to the Eagles, how many high school teams are named the Eagles? Um, you know, you got the Eagles in football. Quint mentions the trademark situation, even if he did want to go with that. I, I, but I, I think even if the trademarking wasn't there, it's minor league baseball. It has to be fun. It has to be unique. It has to be creative. It can't be the Warriors, you know, even though that might fit the region and somebody's opinion, it, it, I think it has to be unique. And I think all five of these names are unique. I think they're fun. Um, whichever one you guys go with, I think it's a marketable, um, you know, moniker. I definitely think you could do a lot of things. Like you said, keeping the snappers name, maybe throwback nights. You can keep snappy around. You don't have to lose the mascot. You know, there's so many, so many possibilities for you guys. Um, for one, just coming off of my own opinion, Selfishly speaking, I think it would be cool to go with one of the um, the uh, the names like maybe the Sky Carp, which is one of your finalists, um, because then the Marlins would have all sea dwelling mascots as their affiliates. I think that would be pretty cool. <laughs> so. I think too, before you introduce a name, you give a history of the name. Yeah. So, for example, the Sky Carp is actually a goose, and when I when I used to do my leadership presentations, which I still do. I use geese as an example of an unbelievably cool thing. They, they, form, they form in formation. If one goose goes down, they all go down. When they get tired, they rotate. They're a remarkable animal. Now, the neat part about that name, and I'm just saying I like all the names, is 
the sky carp comes from a goose that chooses not to migrate. So here we are trying to tell people don't leave Beloit. We want to grow the population. It sort of has a cool little ring to it. Um, you know, and God, how can you not like supper clubs? You know, I love them, you know, little. So, so I think it'll be fun. We, we've taken a lot from the trash pandas. We, we looked at um, the sod poodles, which had over 10,000 people on a petition saying, please don't name it that. Please don't name it that. Um, but for us to survive, you need a name that's going to be very unique. That's not going to be one that's used other places. And you, and, and I know people struggle with that, but um, I've told people, if, we, if you can guarantee me $400,000 worth of merchandise, you can name the team. Yeah, I mean, no matter which one it is, cheese balls, again, you're in Wisconsin, you know, the polka pike, sea-dwelling animal, I just said it. The sky carp, Quint just mentioned about the geese. And yeah, polka pike, the northern pike, it's a big fish in Wisconsin, another fish. Yeah, so, People got to, um, there's too much tragedy going on in this world to spend this much energy on this. Yeah. This, you know, we, we've got to make sure we, we got corporate sales. We got to get the stadium done. Um, and it'll happen when it'll happen. We're in no rush. There's a lot of change, Alex, because Major League Baseball now is managing it all. And, and so there's, there's a lot of change going on and, on how things are going to happen. And so we're, we're in no hurry. Right now, our, our big deal, we just hired a new president that started uh, last week. We're excited about that. Um, right now, our main goal is to build up our staff because you're only as strong as your workforce. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, I, I, I know it's going to be a success. With everything that you did in Pensacola, you know, I think those people that are naysaying now in Beloit, they're going to be gone pretty quickly, just like they were in Pensacola. So, uh, yeah, uh, all I see from you, Quint, uh, period, uh, I said it before, is absolute champion stewardship for one community and now for another one. You know, you want the best for people. You want people to be kind to each other, as you state. Um, and you go to work for the people. And I think it's absolutely admirable. Um, this has been really fun for me to talk to you. Um, and of course, read your story. I'm continuing to read it as well. Um, amazing. So um, again, thank you so much. I do have the quick fire round to get to, get to before we go. But I just wanted to say thank you again so much for coming on. Insight into both teams absolutely incredible learned a lot about the direction of the minor league system from you and i think this relationship between the marlins and yourself is going to be successful so thank you again thank you all right so before we go guys we do have the quick fire round um quint it's just five short answer questions for you um a little bit of fun in here as well so uh all right so round one um i'm going to be a visitor to pensacola um i've been there a couple times haven't really gotten to see much of the area just driving through really for me. But for those of us in Miami that are baseball fans and minor league fans that are going to be coming up to see your team, obviously we're going to enjoy the stadium that you built. But um, I want to ask you, favorite restaurant, bar, or social spot in Pensacola for you? I would tell you the, probably the place I'll end up is the Fish House. The Fish House has been around forever. It's right on the water. You look outside. It's where all the pictures are of all the celebrities and so on. So I, I would think if there's one restaurant, they'd probably want to hit It'd probably be the fish house, but there's many, many great restaurants in this. We got that Louisiana touch. So it's full of great, great restaurants. Yeah, I'm sure. I can't wait to try the seafood because I'm sure the seafood's amazing. All right. Second question. All time, you kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but all time favorite baseball player and why for you? Um, I, I sort of like Louis Aparicio. You know, I grew up and he was a shortstop and I just love the Louis Aparicio and Nelly Fox. But I, I think if you ask me outside of Chicago, 
you know, I grew up in the fifties and if you grew up in the fifties, you, you had to love Mickey Mantle. I have a lot of Mickey Mantle books, Mickey Mantle things. So I would say um, probably Mickey Mantle. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Mickey. All right. Round three, uh, maybe a tougher one, but I do want to ask biggest lesson that baseball has taught you about life as a professional and as a person. Well, I, I think it's patience and relationships like anything else. You have to be patient. And sometimes, you know, I'd watch a minor leaguer struggle and I couldn't believe why, why did they keep him? But they kept him for a reason because he came and he flourished. So I think patience, and I still think it comes down to relationships. And I, I think that's, baseball's about relationships. I mean, the, the fact that um, the Beloit's there because of relationships, relationship with Diane Hendricks and her people, relationship with Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball was really a champion of Beloit early on. They saw the value of having a great stadium and a, a great location. Yeah, for sure. All right. I got two more. Um, if you could sum it up in a few words, uh, maybe a couple adjectives here. How do you think you'll feel when you're able to welcome fans back at both of your parks, hopefully in 2021, early 2021? Um, relief and excitement. Relief that it's happening, excited that we're there all there. Yeah, for sure. Can't, can't, can't disagree there. I'm going to be relieved and excited when it's back too. relieved because I get minor league all baseball right. back and then excited because I get to watch baseball again and do what I love to do. So um, yeah, finally, Quint, last question for you. We know how much you've accomplished uh, in your career, um, but I want to ask you if you could, uh, if you could give us one most rewarding moment for you so far in your career as a professional. Um, we do something here called build a brain. And we did some research and found out that 80 to 85% of the brain is built by age three. So we piloted a program in all our hospitals that a mother, before she leaves the hospital, gets a tutorial on how to build her brain. And after three years of doing it, the University of Chicago came out and researched it, said we're actually turning the dial. Because if we want to have a great country, we've got to get our children ready for kindergarten, which means we've got to get moms leaving the hospitals able to understand the power they have to build their child's brain. Awesome. Amazing. I mean, just, just goes to show how much Quint has done. Um, you know, not, not only with baseball, but of course in the medical field and other areas, including his amazing, amazing philanthropic work and everything else that he's accomplished goes well beyond baseball. We learned a lot of that today, straight from him. Um, his book is amazing that I'm reading. He has many, I highly recommend this one. It is fantastic. It teaches you even more about the incredible work that Quint and his team and his wife and everybody around him have done in multiple areas of life, um, you know, baseball's just one. So uh, yeah, I want to thank you so much, Quinn, again, for coming on. This has been absolutely amazing for me to learn more about you, um, the baseball side, as well as the personal side and everything else that you've done in now two different communities and continue to do. So it was absolutely enlightening. Um, I think you're a champion philanthropist. I think you're an amazing human being. So I want to thank you again so much for taking the time out. We know you continue to be busy. Uh, with everything that you're doing. Um, I look forward to speaking and working with you more in the future. And I cannot wait to meet you in person when we finally get out at least Pensacola this year. So thank you so much again. Well, thank you. My contact is quint at quintstuter.com if anybody wants to email me directly. Thank you. Yeah, quint is absolutely amazing. And he will tell you anything that you want to know about him or his work. Guys, that's going to do it for episode 10 of Swimming Upstream. I do want to thank the fabulous Quint Studer and his entire team for putting us together today. And of course, Quinn for his time. Again, amazing insight and you're hard pressed to find a better person that just wants kindness and wants everybody to get along. 
and wants the best things for the community that he does his work in and wants to make the world a better place to live. I thank you guys so much for your time. We thank Quint again for his time and his kindness. And we will see you guys next time on Swimming Upstream.